very good morning to you. Welcome into today's programme. Uh, Keith, in relation to Brexit and all that goes with it, the British and French basic salary for an MP is 95,000 and 86,000. Here in Ireland, uh, it's 107,000. This is ridiculous. I nearly crashed my car when I heard about that. Uh, Keith, where can I buy the brooch to display that you speak Irish? Uh, they're impossible to get. Um I don't know where would you get a brooch to um, speak to show. We'll get on to Galliv Legelga, the wonderful team in Galliv Legelga, because they're super. Uh, we'll get on and find out from there. And uh, Keith, where can I buy the brooch to display you speak Irish? They're impossible to get. And uh, Keith, in Dorina Allen's book, One Pot Fits All, uh, there's a fabulous recipe for a coffee cake. Um, Nice story, Keith. Yeah, it is a nice story, so it is. In Africa, daughters would look after their parents instead of putting them into a nursing home. I think we need to go back to that. I know of a family with four daughters who sent their mother into a nursing home, and I think it's shocking. I think your comment is shocking, to be quite honest. I really and truly do. Having we cared for my mother at home for four years before she went into a nursing home where she was eight years, uh, and it's not easy. It ain't easy at all. Uh, I don't, yeah, four daughters, I, I know of a family with four daughters who sent their mother into a nursing home and I think it's shocking. Do you think they did it because she was bold or otherwise? I don't get that comment, to be quite honest, today. Um, Keith, uh, we have no water on the Mulvey Road out near Galway Airport um, yesterday or today and we got no notice about it. Uh, can you please help? Uh, there's a burst of main out there, is there? Okay, so it's, there's a burst of main out there. Uh, we're just getting... De- I'm getting in my headphones. Sorry if I'm a little bit absent. I'm getting a message in my headphones uh, from John saying that there's a burst of main out there and they're doing the roadworks out there and they're working on it. And did they say when it'll be up and running, John, yet? No? I haven't heard yet. Okay. Uh, John will get on to it uh, from there. No water on the one of your road up near the Galway Airport yesterday or today and got no notice about it either. Can somebody come back to us on that? Maybe, am I just reading... In Africa, daughters who look after their parents instead of putting them into a nursing home. I think we need to go back to that. I know of a family with four daughters who sent their mother into a nursing home and I think it's shocking. Am I the only one that's taken offence to that? If I am, I'd want to cut myself on, wouldn't I? Anyway, let me move on today because Dr Tony O'Connor joins me. Um, advanced um, nurse practitioner in St Patrick's Mental Health Services. And we're looking at Eating Disorder Awareness Week. And I know an awful lot of you out there saying, oh, it doesn't, doesn't bother me, nothing to do with me. But um, Tony is a male woman uh, who doesn't have any um, Galway connections. But we're going to talk about um, eating disorders because this is a real, real thing in families, homes right across the city, the county and across the world as well. And uh, Dr Tony O'Connor, good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for joining us uh, today on this one. Um, again, a lot of people might switch off the radio at this stage. If they do, it's their loss. But there's a lot of families right across the world um, that will benefit from listening to this because it's it's everywhere, isn't it? It is everywhere. Um, and I suppose even if we're looking at 200,000 people in Ireland with an eating disorder, might seem like it's not an awful lot. The social, economic and personal and family cost is so high for these people. Huge. And the longer it goes on then, obviously, the higher the cost. So, you know, the sooner that somebody gets treatment, the, the better the, the outcome. 
do do we know um what causes an eating disorder is it is it to do with the person's look the person's education the person's friends is it to do with family life home life is there any so i suppose yeah what we look at is um it's multifactorial so there's a lot of things going on for that person but probably the easiest way to understand it is that somebody has distress in their life and that distress might be a big thing like a death in the family, exams, bullying in school, work-related issues. Or it might even be something really small to you and I, but big to the person, like maybe the death of a pet. So what the eating disorder behaviour allows is the person to become emotionally disconnected from that distress. We all use different ways of managing distress. It might be we go out for a few drinks, or it might be we clean the house from top to bottom all those sorts of things. But for somebody with an eating disorder, it becomes really important that they disconnect from that level of distress. So if we're looking at somebody with anorexia, they might say, I'm thinking about food and weight 24-7. And subconsciously, that stops them thinking about what's really going on for them. And for somebody maybe with binging and purging, they often kind of would say, it's like being in a whiteout in that moment. The problem with somebody who's binging and purging, when that moment of eating disorder behaviour stops, they have huge sort of shame and guilt and self-criticism, which kind of just keeps the eating disorder going. So it's never only one thing, but it really is around the distress and how somebody manages that distress in that moment. And can I just ask you in relation to when you say emotionally disconnect from there, so because of whatever the incident is, the trigger, which could be minor, as you said. Yeah. Is it then that they go into the mode of fight or flight and they block out the thought process and they focus on the food aspect of it whilst not dealing perhaps with the core problem of it? Yeah, that really explains a lot. Like you've got to think about how that distress really impacts somebody emotionally and how it's just too difficult to go there and think about what's really going on for them. So it's like every, it's an awful place for them to be in. So it's, it's food consumes their thought process and that's their focus and then everything else goes on around it from there. So Well, for, for certain people, it's not yeah, always yeah, yeah, food. Yeah, yeah. It might, you know, yeah, yeah, but certainly that, you see, the food and the weight are really only symptoms of what's really going on. So it's not the trigger, it's not the cause, it's how they use it to manage what's going on in their head. And can I ask you, as a doctor then, um, you don't have a crystal ball. Um, you mm-hmm. can't you can't see into their brain. You can't rewind mm-hmm. and download the data and see what happened. How do you get to the point of addressing what the issue is that's causing this? So I suppose the first thing is around the education and looking at and explaining to somebody, understanding their distress and what they're using it for. So there's a lot of therapies out there that helped the person to start to work on what that looked like, even way back or even just more recently. Um, and the starting point really is motivation because if somebody might say to you, I really want to change, I really want to be well, but something is getting in the way. So we think about what that motivation might look like, what's getting in the way, and are there ways in which we can tackle what's getting in the way for them. So it's a long process and you've got to be patient. Sometimes people won't make a full recovery straight away, but that they need to re-engage with therapy along the way, all the while improving their insight and motivation. 
and recovery does happen and I think that's the most hopeful thing that people need to hear today. So would practitioners like your good self and doctors across, would they would they motivate the person in question and try and set a target for them to distract them and give them something different to focus on so that they okay, can... So yeah, sorry, sorry, I'll let you answer. How, most, how motivation works is it's around the person making those decisions. So when we start working on motivation, we, we want the person to think and be curious about what motivation looks like. So we'd never say to somebody, you know, you have to do this and you have to do that. We'd explore what might work for them because you might give them a suggestion. They say, that'll never work. I don't do this. And I can't do that. But it's about them developing those skills for themselves that they can use in moments of distress that they can use going forward in life. So it's very much based on the person's ability and want and need and working around that. So we wouldn't really make those motivational goals for them. It's about them making them for themselves. That way they don't feel forced into doing something that they aren't comfortable with. So effectively then you're there to support but the person will do what needs to be done when they want to do it and not when they're well, being told to yeah. do it. Yeah, absolutely. But the educational piece is so important behind it because if they don't get an understanding of what's going on for themselves, motivation stays quite low. So it is about that educational piece, exploring what might work. So they don't go off and try and think about what might work for themselves. We explore together what might work and what are the the problems with you know, the skills that they're learning or when is the best time to use them. So it's very much kind of a conversation between yourself and the person with the eating disorder. Um, can I park the person with the eating disorder and kind of go to a family member then? The, the mom yep. or the dad or the, yeah, the yep. mom or the dad or the brother, the sister, the uncle, the aunt, whatever. Yep. What, what, what tools do you give them so that they don't throw the person who's got the eating disorder into a total fluster altogether. How did they approach it? Because they're bothered, they're worried, they know they're not eating, they hear them throwing up in the toilet maybe after they've had food to yeah. satisfy a family member. Um, so I'm, I'm, how, do they, how do they deal with the person that they love so much? How can they deal with it without driving them further away or further into the, de- the eating disorder? Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point because automatically, if you're a child, be it an adult child or or a young child, is distressed, you want to step in and fix them. And I suppose the first thing that we, we talk about is you're not going to be able to fix this person, but understanding where it's coming from allows family members, I suppose, to have more of an open communication and an agreement across the board between everybody. So with um, adolescents, the first point of call would be family-based therapy, which helps that communication and insight and education. With adults, it's a little bit different. Um, Adults have to agree for family members to come in, but more often than not, they will. And it's all about the education and how that communication can change. It's also about the person with eating disorder explaining what's helpful and not helpful in a kind of a non-blaming way, but then thinking together as a family what might work if you're distressed? What can I do to help you right now? I see you're struggling. So it's about naming it. It's about asking the person, what can I do now? Because parents actually don't know what to do and they're very frightened that mm. their young person or their child will will become really unwell. 
So that communication is so important. And if the person with the eating disorder can actually explain what's helpful or not helpful, you know, give or take, there has to be some sort of an agreement between them, and that's what family therapy helps with, then that really, everybody then is singing from the same hymn sheet, and it tends to then decrease that kind of high critical, argumentative sort of thing that happens at home. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, how do you take it... um how do you take, you know, when you talk about if it's a young person that, you know, you, you meant, I think you referred to, was it family therapy or family? Yeah, uh, family based ca- therapy. Yeah, yeah family based yeah. therapy. Um, but how do you get the the person, the young person in this stage, this situation that has the eating disorder, how do you get them to co- go on that journey with you? Because I'm fine, there's nothing wrong with me. It's only you that have the problem. I don't have a problem. Uh, yeah, so yeah. How, how do you get that over the line to say, look at, you 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 used another word that you you said by naming it. So do you yeah. do you, do you confront the person and say, "Listen, Keith, you've got an eating disorder. We need to do something. We love you. We need to do something to try and get through this. Can we go to family based therapy?" So I suppose what the starting point would be, Keith, and wherever I will use Keith as, as, well, an, use as me. an example. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, we would say it's not about we see you have an eating disorder because maybe as parents you don't know. So um, it's about I see that that you're losing weight and we're really worried. Or I I hear you throwing up in the bathroom. What's going on for you? So it's naming the behaviours more than labelling it as an eating disorder because we don't know at that stage if it is an eating disorder. So usually you would get that pushback from particularly from young adults. Um, but you keep you keep saying, I'm still worried about you. Can we go to the GP? And then if there's nothing wrong, I'll stop. I'll stop going on about it. So you're kind of you're you're also want as an ad, as a parent to say, I need more information as well. And if we go and I'm told it isn't an eating disorder, that's fine. But at least my worrying will be parked a little bit. So, you know, not naming. I think you have an eating disorder. Now, just if I could also mention that BodyWise have a really good program for, for carers. So we're talking about parents, siblings, partners, and it's called the Pillar Program. And it's a, it's a four-week program which helps family members or support people to think about how they address the eating disorder. So you don't need your son or your daughter to have been um, diagnosed. You can actually just apply and attend this program and it's wonderful for kind of that insight yeah. and teaches you ways in which you can start to address it or talk to that person about your concerns. We, we'll give them all the contact details for BodyWise afterwards because mm. it is uh, Eating right. Disorder uh, Awareness Week. But you, yeah. but the aggressive calling them out, um, all of that, type yeah, of thing, no, that, that, yeah. that, that doesn't work. And I, I love the way you say, you know, you want to step in and fix them. Nobody, yeah. nobody can fix anybody, going back to my other statement, uh, yeah. Nobody can fix anybody unless they want to do it. They have to That's want to do right. it. Yeah. So you can't. You and can't. It's really, really difficult, like for parents to see that happening. But often, you know, if parents are saying taking on the kind of "I am worried about it," then the young person or the adult will will say, "Okay, for your sake, I will do it." So sometimes they do it initially. Um, for the sake of other people but then it becomes a place where they're able to kind of explore for themselves and then it shifts to doing it for themselves. It's not a fair question Dr Tony O'Connor, Advanced Nurse Practitioner with St Patrick's Mental Health Services uh, based in Dublin. Uh, it's, it's not a fair question but how long would a process, once the person of whatever age they are starts to engage, 
how long would the process take for them to have a better quality of life and for family members or partners or husbands or wives to, to relax a little bit? I suppose there isn't a straightforward answer to that um, because it depending on what sort of treatment they engage in, it depends on their age and insight, it depends on severity and length of time the person might have the eating disorder. It depends on how much support they have out in the community. Also, maybe if somebody is depressed and anxious with it. So I don't mean to kind of not give you an answer, but there really isn't a fixed answer with that because there's so many elements involved in the treatment that, you know, can get in the way. And I suppose it's important to think also recovery is never linear. So with somebody with an eating disorder, there will be those relapses. And so panic then sets in, particularly with parents. But with relapses, the person learns as they go along how to manage relapses so that maybe a relapse is shorter or it's not as intense or support people can step in straight away. So you really are looking at all very much dependent on circumstances um, of that person with the eating disorder and the family support systems that are available. Somebody just said, Keith, could you ask your guest uh, where can get one help? Sorry, where can one get help for a six-year-old with ARFID? Is that yeah, ARFID, yeah. Well, it, 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 it sort of is. So it's around, um, it's a type of eating difficulty. So that's around... Um, you know, things like picky eaters that won't eat certain things, but actually it, it, it can be detrimental to a, um, a child's uh, growth. Um, so the GP is always the first point of call. And the GP can then, I mean, I don't know if this person has actually been properly diagnosed, but that the GP can certainly help to kind of put them in the direction of somebody, child and adolescent services, who can assess and take it from there. If you're affected by what we're talking about uh, today, uh, the mm-hmm. number for uh, BodyWise, there's a helpline, there's 01, it's a Dublin number, uh, 210-7906, that's 01-210-7906. I could talk about it forever, I know that there's loads of assistance out there, but I'd say there isn't a, an extended family that haven't at some stage come across something mm-hmm. like what we're talking about. Yeah, I, and people are very lost on how to help. And I suppose that's why this eating disorder awareness week is so important because if people have information, at least they can take it from there because it is a very frightening place to be in. I I would urge on caution, by the way, because I know parents love their children and all of that, but the bullish kind of you have to eat that, have that at a young age, even at six years of age, whatever age they might be, or seven or eight or nine or ten, and that bullish kind of behaviour will only just isolate yourself even further, seek advice, go to yeah. the GP, talk to the GP. You were talking about going to the GP. Are, are they, yeah. they they feeling sorry for the parent and saying, should I go to the GP if that's what you want? Yes, well, anything that gets them, it started. Yeah, it's about starting the conversation, really, and starting the conversation in, in a way that isn't aggressive. Yes, exactly. Just kind of, I suppose, expressing your own concerns. Listen, keep up the good work. Uh, where can they get further details on St. Patrick's Mental Health Services? Um, where can they get further details? Uh, yeah, it's St. Patrick's um, .ie. Yep, that's it. That'll get you on the website. St. Patrick's .ie from there. Yeah. And then just maybe just to, to yeah. give you um, an update tonight that we're giving a talk on the different sorts of treatment interventions. That's a webinar. 
And if people want to access that, it's stpatricks.ie forward slash events. I think uh, and it's, it's a free event. Yeah. And forward slash events uh, from there. Yeah. I'm just looking at our comment lines uh, today, Dr. Tony O'Connor, and they're just they're just hopping. They really are oh, hop- isn't that just awesome? Yeah. That just but, tells you how distressed people are. But that just shows you that there's so yeah. many families out there that are that are just yeah. hurting by this and don't know where to turn. And God love them. Just God love them. And certainly the, the BodyWise website is a very good starting point for anybody. It is. And their number is 012107906. They're open from um, today is Wednesday, 7.30pm to 9.30pm. Uh, tonight, but there's, the, the website, as you said, is just superb. And talk to your yeah. own GP as well, because GPs are wonderful. They really are wonderful. And uh, talk to them from there. Uh, Dr. Tony O'Connor, uh, thank you for joining us uh, today at St. Patrick's.ie forward slash events if you want to join them uh, tonight. Uh, some of the comments coming in today. Keith, I agree. Um, I agree with you, Keith. Somebody agrees with me today. Despite their best efforts, some people have no choice but uh, putting their loved ones into a nursing home. Outsiders that are unaware of all circumstances shouldn't be so judgmental. Well, that's my thought process on it also. I agree with you. Short break. We're back just after these. Galway Talks, in association with Tesco. Find our award-winning Irish ranges in store and online at tesco.ie. Very good morning to you. I'm joined by Morag Prunty, a.k.a. Um, prize-winning author Kate Kerrigan. I'm joined by Tanya Lenhart uh, joining us. And Tanya is the producer of Daring Dames. And um, it's a circus, an all-female circus. And uh, Tanya sits up to me this morning. Tanya, good morning to you. Good morning. Did you run away with the circus? What happened to you? <laughs> Actually, uh, I'm hoping to. Uh, this is my first time with the Daring Dames Festival. I've been working with uh, Circus 250 on other events, but uh, first time with Daring Dames, hoping to run away with them. You're going to run away with them? Do you really want to run away? Do you love circus? I mean, who doesn't? It's such fun, the spectacular, the specular, the spectacle. Spectacular uh, spectacle. Spe- yes. Yeah. Uh, the the throws, the lifts, the fire, the everything. It's just lovely. And you're doing this in Ackill, is that true? Yes, the beautiful island of Ackill. Uh, it's a beautiful backdrop to have this uh, festival uh, from March 3rd to 5th, uh, we have two venues on the island for the events, and we're looking forward to kind of bringing it. This is the second year, and it's only getting bigger and better. Mm. It's an interesting concept, so it is, but is, is it the only all-female circus in the world? It's definitely in Europe. Uh, don't quote us on the world, but from our understanding, we have that grasp as well. Mm. In the world? It's certainly Europe's only yeah. all-female circus festival. Yes, we're very proud of that. Um, so Morag joins me on the line, Morag Prunty, aka prize-winning author Kate Kerrigan, and um, she is the festival's designer and has been involved from the beginning. So did she lead you astray then? Did she bring you in or how did you get involved? Morag, are you with me uh, there? You, hello, can you hear me? I can hear you, yeah, but I was asking your colleague, did, she, did you lead her astray and bring it in? But she didn't answer me, she just looked funny at me, so she did. No, no, it's actually uh, the founder of Circus 250 is this incredible woman, a circus performer, writer, 
all-round circus aficionado called Dee Burkett, Dr. Dee Burkett. And she's very busy at the moment um, grabbing everyone and setting the whole thing up for the weekend. Um, she has a home on Ackle, and that's where Cir she's been running now, Circus 250, which is a world sort of um, European-wide um, circus organization that she founded to celebrate 250 years of circus and this daring dames festival was really her brainchild and her passion um, because circus is actually a very male dominated um, art form um, and so even though you know we see the circus the female circus performers you know they're very glamorous we know what female circus performers look like, but in the actual world of circus, it's still very male dominated. So this festival is really about, you know, the title of it is Daring Dames, and it's really about strong women. Women who are daring, not just in the physical sense or in the muscular sense, although we do have an awful lot of, there's an awful lot of physical circus happening. There's a lot of crazy acrobats. I mean, there's some really impressive stuff and strong women and tumblers, um, but also bringing the element of daring into the idea of, you know, women are very brave. They're very courageous, not just physically, but very strong. Do you know? Yeah, and that's yeah. really what Daring Games is. It is a celebration of that. It's a celebration of female strength, female daring, pushing the boundaries, not just the physical boundaries, but also, well, the I mean, we've uh, the comedy boundaries. There's We've got a couple of, the, there is a circus act called Beryl herself. And if I... You know, I'm a busy woman. I'm an author, but I'm my passion is that I'm Circus 250's wardrobe mistress, and what and I am like a super Beryl fan. And Beryl is this incredible acrobat who um, is uh, she? She's like um, an old lady acrobat um, who kind of yeah throws her zimmer for. I mean, she's just hilarious. So a lot of the and a, you know a lot of the female performers they're just they're pushing out the boundaries of expectations, what yeah. we expect of women, what we expect of circus, what we expect of, I mean, you know, um, Beryl looks 85 and she's running around um, juggling knives and throwing her Zimmer frame in the air. I'm not going to tell anyone how old she is, but she, she just, it's that kind of hilarious comedy that women will push their, the boundaries out. The same with our other clown, Angelica, who is, you know, uh, an incredible world-class clown from Chile um, who's been living here, you know, for quite a long time now and has established the most incredible circus practice. So, um, yeah. Alt, alt play for just, you can hear me. I'm just like sequins. You know, I just can't wait to get my hands on these women and start dressing them up. And come here, so it's running over the weekend from the 3rd to the 5th. Uh, How many performances are there going to be? We have... Loads. Um, <laughs> I wish I'd <I'd> you. <laughs> <laughs> we have at least five or six performances that are scheduled, and in those we have the Daring Dames Cabaret, which is on 9 o'clock in the afternoon, or evening, apologies, on Saturday at the Ackle Hotel, uh known on the island as Alice's, and that'll be a lovely spectacle of multiple acts coming together, about eight or nine coming together and doing this cabaret style and saying we have our daring debuts on Sunday afternoon at 2.30 at the hotel as well, and a lot of like work in progresses and shows that are kind of being morphed together uh, to show these variety oh, yeah. of spaces. 
But Anya, um, before you joined us um, there, um, Kate, um, Tanya said she does want to run away with the circus. So can we facilitate well, that? Sh- we certainly can. <laughs> and I will be organising her wardrobe this weekend. I hope she's ready. <laughs> Yeah. Ribbons, corsets. I'm. A, why don't you come down? I'll dress you. I'm not a woman. It doesn't matter. Oh my goodness me! Jamie, no. now we're all very gender neutral. Oh, we're we all are, very gender neutral. Oh, James, I'm so proud that you're an all woman team. Well, first of all, something else on this weekend. But Europe's well, the world's only female circus festival. So I'd only ruin it. I'd spoil it on you, side. No, no, care. no, no. No, we love the boys. We love the boys coming down. Let me tell you something, pushing the boat out. You know, um, we, we have loads of men in the audience and occasionally I pick one out and I'm telling you something. When I get the sequins out, when I get the sequins <laughs> and the hat out, everyone <laughs> loves to dress up and I'll just plug two more shows on the Friday night um, the dare, as, as associated with the Daring Dames there's um, uh, two women's shows on the Friday night uh, again it's free but you have to go on to the circuit um, hashtag circus 250 um, you have to you have to book because they're very kind of um, the you know they're very kind of exclusive performances you yeah. have to book if you want to get in and they do get very very busy so on the Friday night we have a show by author Kate Kerrigan aka me called Am I Irish yet? And then we also have the incredible comedy harpist Ursula Burns, who'll be on after me. And that's from, I think, seven o'clock okay. on Friday night. Both shows need to be booked. And again, they're just, we're just two crazy dames. We're too old to do acrobatics, but we're pushing the boundaries out with our, with our performances. So what, um, what's and then on Saturday from 11.30 in the morning, come down to Ackle, come down to the Ackle Hotel on Ackle Sound, and it's all kicking off. What's the best website, can I ask you? Tanya, you're not getting a word in anyway, so God love you in Ackle at the weekend. <laughs> you know, you, she's going to strap you up and put you into gear and let you go, and that'll be it. Um, where, where should they go for... Um, tickets we have an eventbrite uh, it's eventbrite slash cc slash daring dames festival and you can book tickets there everything is free for the whole weekend but we do recommend booking tickets in advance all free yeah all free every event is free and just see she wants yeah, to just word. go on to instagram at go on to instagram at circus 250 um go on to facebook at circus 250 or go on to the at circus 250 daring dames website all on there and you'll have a bit of crack going on the website anyway you can see how amazing the whole thing is does she talk no sleep do you reckon <laughs> I don't know Morag do don't you cock no sleep <laughs> <laughs> well listen Morag well done to you I love, I love the name Morag Prunty thanks Cindy for joining us so go to Eventbrite then from there and um, Tanya that's really where you're saying go to Eventbrite yeah that's where all the you can get the exact times and the exact locations uh, for those things perfect everything's very close by but she really wants the last word. <laughs> she, she's still there, Kate. Last word! <laughs> good luck to you. Thanks for joining us uh, today on the programme. A very good morning to you. By the way, it's a real male show today, so it is. So we're going to Ackill for the weekend. Well, we're not, no, I have something else on. Uh, but All Shook Up, uh, by the way, is, is taking place in the Royal Theatre Company from the 9th to the 11th of March 2023. It's running from a Thursday uh, to a Saturday. It's a rocky and heartwarming, musical-inspired and uh, features the songs of Elvis Presley. And tickets are from €12, Euro, uh, which can be had from the Royal Theatre box office if you want to get uh, further details there. So it runs on Thursday the 9th, Friday the 10th, Saturday the 11th, 
and two shows on Saturday at 2pm and the star of the show is John Morley who's outside the glass here and that was with you last week on the programme and the producer of this programme so he's the sh- he is he is the star of the show I'm told up there so we're looking for yeah I'm not lying no I'm not I have it on good authority so I have the Jennings family have you up there they're, they've actually ordered a statue uh, similar to him it's a long statue as well that they're putting up in the foyer for the duration of the production uh, so further details can be had from the Royal Theatre in um I'll take that talk back you off you in a minute. The Royal Theatre in Castlebar for the details. And tickets are only twelve euro. And to be honest, you're gonna get a great night or a great matinee or a great night out uh, for twelve euro. From from twelve euro, is it? And if you say if you say you're you know John Morley, you'll get friends and family, they'll give it to you for twelve fifty. Galway Talks in association with Tesco. Click and collect allows you to collect your order whenever suits you. Hey, very good morning to you. Welcome in to today's programme. It's uh, 11.45, by the way. That statue of John that's going into the um, Royal Theatre in Castlebar, it's, it's a paper mache one that they've made of him from all of the uh, newspapers and mail that have covered his career down through the years. So it's beautifully done, paper mache with all of his um, articles and all that type of stuff in it. Well done to them. Can't wait to see it photograph of it. Now let me move on because Michael Gibbons joins me, archaeologist extraordinaire, and he's looking at a conservation of Galway's ancient heritage sites. Now any of you that were watching the 9 o'clock news last night will have seen Theresa Mannion out there with the uh, cameras and the ex- wonderful excellent uh, video footage uh, of Kosharriga and what we're talking about uh, this morning. Uh, but he joins me on the line. Michael, good to talk to you again. How are you today? Great, yeah, it's lovely here in Connemara. Thanks for the God. Yeah. What part of Connemara are you in today now? Well, I'm in the a house looking over Clifton Base. So I live in the middle of Clifton, so but I look down on the bay. So Good I'm lucky enough to live in the, the furthest corner of Connemara. But oh. I know it very well, you know, inner and outer, north and southeast and well. I've spent a lifetime exploring the you did, coast, mountains and islands of Connemara. You do, and you do many walks there as well. You, you, you lead people on excursions as well. Yeah, I was on Ackle Island now with a gang of students from U, in UIG over the weekend. So it was stunning altogether. And I go to the barn regularly. And yeah, no, it's a very exciting place to live. So we're very happy here. But you, you love what you do, and you love, you love, you love what you do. Bring me to Kosharga and. Um, this story goes back a long, long, long way, so it does, and it goes back yeah, to... Yeah, no, it's, it's one of the... Like, we have periods in Irish history where the landscape is very loud. You can see monuments, like from Galway, where you're sitting, you can see the tombs on top of the burn. But there's an earlier period, which we know very little about, and that's the first 4,000 years of Irish history, and that's the Middle Stone Age. But Galway itself was a hot spot for it because you had salmon running up. So these are people who were nomadic hunter-gatherers, living on their wits, living off the shore seals, shellfish, hunting wild birds after the huge shoals of salmon that would have been running through the carob, and eel, wild berries, and uh, hazelnuts. So it's a completely different world. And they lived that way for the best part of uh, 4,000 years. It's the longest period in Irish history. But along Galway Bay in particular, it's the richest bay in Ireland in terms of shell mittens. So from Achanish Island on the south side, uh, from Kinvara Bay up to Tawan, Caramore, that sort of mouth of uh, Dunkellan River, all the way around to Ross Cam. Those inner bays are full of very large oyster middens. But as you move westward into Spidgel and out to Inderon, Trabon, Lethamore, Lethamallon, out to Carney, you have different types of middens. So, midden is basically an ancient shell dump, and there's one of them on the shore with a very large mound 
gaan een billion voor gaan aan de mensen moment. Dat is een billion um, shares. shares. And um, that's what we got a date for. And I was doing some work with, uh, funded by Winteris, a sort of rapid survey of the coastal areas of, of Connemara. And we got a date for several of these middens. But this one was very surprising because it's the oldest site on the west coast of Ireland that we know of. And so it's... Uh, and of course, it's been eaten by the sea, so yeah. it's one of the areas, as with global warming, you know, our air land, and global warming has been going on for millennia, like it's not just a recent thing, but it's, we're more we're more aware of it, it's having a bigger impact, at least we're measuring bigger impacts, and uh, this site is gradually being carted away by the sea, like hundreds of others on the coast of Galway, and right up into Mayo and Donegal. Can I just go back to the 4,000 years that you're talking about? So, did they consume the... The contents of the shells, is that what kept them alive then? Yeah, they're eating, they're eating shellfish and they're also using them in another way. Some of the shells, uh, they're extracting a dye, a purpura dye. So uh, down in down in Fergus Cove and Dingle and elsewhere and then up and in, in Dogs Bay, Dulan and in Rainville, we see evidence where they were taking, extracting a clear liquid, exposing it to the sun and it's giving you a colour called crimson, like a deep purple. And that was a royal colour only in Ireland. What would they use it for then, Michael? Sorry? What would they use those colours for then? Would that be for Probably writing? In, in, like in the early church in Ireland, only the nobility could wear the colour purple. So that notion of a purple patch comes from a colour you get from a shellfish because of its embedded association with royalty or with religious. So it was probably like a paint, an ochre that you might put on, well, use it in your clothes, as you could use it on burials. So it was widely used in ancient times. You'll find it all over the Middle East, a big mound mm. of these dog quags. But the, the Galway coastline is particularly rich in these shell mounds. Inner Galway Bay, the, some of the biggest shell mounds we have in the country are there because uh, that's where you have the big rich oyster fisheries, the freshwater and the saltwater mixing, giving us this huge, lovely environment for our oysters. And they're exploiting those over a thousand mm. years. For the West, it's more winkles, um, and it's not as productive a uh, seascape there in terms of shellfish. No. But you get razorfish and um, and barnyucks as well, limpets. But they wouldn't have, I mean, they wouldn't be putting on weight with those because, I mean, there wasn't... No, and very small numbers. Like, yeah. the people, there was 4,000 years in Ireland where there might have been as few as 10,000 people living in the whole country. And the whole country. And when the farmers come around, so the agricultural revolution just displaces this population. And they are, we're... So, and they disappear or vanish or are killed off very possibly. So they're the first nomadic hunter-gatherer populations that roamed right around Ireland, and in particular up to Goa City. That's lovely about Goa City. Um, we've documented hunter-gatherer populations all along Goa Bay, but up into the lake. Can you imagine how rich the Carib River was in ancient times? It would have been teeming with salmon. So they're right. around Minlow, on the way down into where the Great Morass, where the bridges are crossing now, there's lots of archaeology found there years ago by the the, the Galway Sabacqua Club, and lots of archaeology in and around the city itself, well documented by Dr. Jim Higgins from the Heritage Officer there in Galway. And we just take so it we're working on a publication now to bring some of this material together. Um, Winters is a training cultural organisation based in Chirney. They've done, done wonderful work. So I'm working part-time for them just pulling a publication on this whole landscape together over the next year or so. So it's a very exciting project. So, I mean, and it, 
I'm little tight of time on this one, Michael, but I mean, what did they live in? Did they, I mean, because it was so well, long ago. We, well, we, we have found none of their houses here, but in Mount Sandal up in, in Derry on the coast there near Coleraine, they found like sunken circular houses, sort of semi-permanent settlements, and they'd forage out from that and they were following the migrating salmon. There was no animal, large mammals in Ireland at the time. The largest mammal was a wild boar. So they're like wigwam-type structures sunken into the ground, sort of half-submerged. So semi-permanent. So they, were, they would stay for a while, a couple of months, in one spot, and and they're, they're mobile. They're moving whatever resources are available. The winter fowl, the seals coming in, the salmon as they come in in the spring. So it was so basic survival then, Michael, all the time. Yeah, like every day you had to think, what am I going to hunt today? You know, yeah. very little storage and a huge mortality rate. So most children would have, half the children would have died by the age of two. So low population. So farming comes in, it changes all of that. It allows, yeah. you're farming the land for but, its crop. You're domesticating crops and animals. It's a completely different world. And you're bringing in your cattle. So farming is introduced around 6,000 years ago as a whole package with the animals are brought with them. So this is a very interesting period, and there's some really nice artifacts in the national Mu- in the museum in Galway, that lovely museum, mm. from this very early period on display at the moment. Where would the animals have come from? The animals brought them in by boat. They literally had to carry. Um. The first farmers are coming. They're loading up their boats with probably young cattle and young calves and horses and sheep. All of that's new. There was none of those large mammals. So when the first people arrived in Ireland, what a disappointment! The only thing they could hunt was wild boar. And bear, and of course the bear were probably doing the hunting of them. So, yeah. But they were successfully adapted to that world by using the fish resources, the shellfish resources on the coast, and mm-hmm. the eel and salmon resources on the on the rivers and lakes. Where can they get further details on this? On, um, on, I mean, on when will the publication be ready? Well, that's that's why we've just started on it, actually. So but, uh, there are a number of articles that I published with Jim Higgins, who's the heritage officer in Galway, on, on online actually on hunter gather earlier evidence we have around Galway and Mayo. So, Academia Edu is a, a publication online where I've put up some of the articles. But at this site is just recently dated, so there's nothing on this at all. So, this is the most information anyone has got on it. Is what I'm telling you now. Well done, well done. We would have to get you into this. There's so many different documentaries that could be done on this, so there is, uh, and the heritage. Oh, yeah, and there's an urgency of doing it, so hopefully we'll be able to get some funding. I work well with the National Development Service, and there's a big project just finishing up on the east coast of Ireland, and they really need one, a comparable one on the west coast, because we have far richer archaeology on the west coast than we do have on on the east and the south, so if we can get a group to go and there's lots of archaeologists in the West as you know mm. so you know hopefully we'll get some more funding and research into the because these sites will be lost with global warming and sea level rise it's fascinating though really is you must just love your job altogether because I love talking to you this morning <laughs> I, I don't want to <laughs> well, stop well, talking to you well it's great to have an audience you know because there's lots of people interested in this subject and you know there's a very good archaeological society in Galway City or Galway County Galway Archaeological Society so hope I'm on I'm in Nope, so I'd like to be able to talk on this later to them at some stage. Great. Um, so there's lots of nice work going on and throughout Connemara, especially in Canton and Ilon and that lovely area. Well, you're very welcome any time that you want to come in here and talk to us as well, Michael Gibb. I will go to you because I love Clifton. It's one of my favourite places. So I'll go to you. <laughs> I'll go to you and we'll record from there. Listen, thanks for joining us uh, today. Uh, Keith, when is the event on in Ackill? It's on this weekend. It's running from the 3rd uh, to the 5th. Isn't that what it is? 
Yeah, it's running from the 3rd to the 5th is when it's running uh, from there. And uh, Keith has uh, called to say congratulations to Sarah O'Hara. She spoke so well. And uh, I wish her well into the future. Sarah spoke about her brother, Alan O'Hara. So we're thinking of Alan today and her parents in Kilimer County Galway as well. And that story, I think, resonated uh, with an awful lot of people. So... Uh, again, thank you indeed uh, for that. That's it for today. We're back July from Studio One uh, tomorrow morning on the program just after the nine o'clock news. So if you want to get in contact with us, uh, feel free to do so. You can do so uh, by just emailing comments at galwaybfm.ie. That's comments at galwaybfm.ie for further details. That's it for today. Stop, 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 stop Keith. Stop, stop. That's it for today. We're back to... <laughs> That's what happens when you try to do too many things at the one time. Tomorrow morning we were looking at our very own Dylan Connolly taking on the 3,000 push-ups challenge in March to support MS um, Ireland. Three Connemara men successfully summit a mountain in South America. They joined us on the programme. A celebrity stylist has moved back to Ireland after 33 years of cutting hair in America. It's local enterprise week. We'll have gardening with Anne McKeown and the Connacht Tribune headlines with uh, Dave O'Connell. All of that and more uh, tomorrow morning on the programme. John Morley produced uh, today... Siobhan took all of your comments. I'll be talking to you tomorrow just after the 9 o'clock news. We hope that you enjoyed today's programme and that you join us again tomorrow just after 9 o'clock. Don't forget the programme is podcasted on an hourly basis. So the 10 o'clock and 11 o'clock hour is up on galwaybfm.ie. Just go to podcasts. Have a good and a safe Wednesday. We'll talk to you tomorrow for Thursday's programme. Galway Talks, in association with Tesco. Find our award-winning Irish ranges in-store and online at tesco.ie.